yeah. I felt a little insecure this week, so I was like, man, I just got to like... Um, no, I noticed the last few weeks when I was pacing around up here, I'd see people in the back rows going like, you know, trying to swing around me. So I'll try it this week. feels a little awkward for me. It probably feels a little awkward for you. Uh, we'll see how it goes, and we'll switch it up if it's weird. All right. Um, welcome, anybody who's first time. Uh, my name is Ryan Longfield. If you don't know me, I'm, uh, my wife and I are the senior leaders of the church, and we're really thankful that you're here. Uh, we've been going through a journey through the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 8 right now. And so if you'd like to go to our podcast and, and uh, catch up with us, it'll take a while because we've been going all year through the book, but, uh, but that's where we are in the journey. So we're going to continue on in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, if you want to open up your e-Bibles or real thing. Anybody got a real one in here? All right. Still got about 10% of the house that brings a, a hard, hard sword, e-sword, hard sword. Okay. Um, so before we jump in there, I wanted to introduce the topic because it's one that's really uh, a big deal for this particular house. From our inception, when we started back, uh, what is it, 11, 11 and a half years ago, something like that? 10 and a half? We're going on 11? Almost 11 years ago, um, we started as a little house of prayer. And it was a group of people who honestly just wanted to seek the face of the Lord, it's like, I don't really know how to do the church thing. I don't really know how to do a lot of things in the world. Uh, but what I do know is that every time I've met with God, I've been dramatically impacted and changed. And I've tasted enough and I've seen enough to know that that's what I want. And so it was a, it was a bunch of people who honestly probably weren't great church attenders, but we'd meet you know, three days a week and worship for four hours at a time. We do that every week if we could. And that, that kind of thing just drove our life. It was this passion. It was this desire for intimacy with God. And so any way that we knew how to do it, whether it was praying all night or whether it was worshiping all night or whether it was reading the word or whatever it was, it was like, sign me up. That's what my life's about. I'm going hard after knowing who this Jesus is. And what we see in the passage that we're going to talk about today is different parties interacting with Jesus and having that type of an experience where they're getting to know him, where they, they see him move and then something happens and they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what does this situation look like based upon this person that I've seen. And this is a group of disciples that's similar to us in the early days of the ark. We're like, Wow, I've seen Jesus do some stuff, enough stuff that I know that the cost of discipleship, which is leaving everything to follow him, is something that I'm in for. And then as they walk that out, they actually realize what the cost of discipleship is, and they have to continue to choose back in over and over again as things get hard and as things get exciting and as things get miraculous and as things get mind-blowing. There's all of these different experiences of walking with Jesus, not all of them easy. But this, this, this singular question runs throughout the book of Matthew, and we get to see the disciples and others interact with it, and it, it's, who is this man? Who is this man? It's the biography of Jesus, and so you'll see it in this passage explicitly say, who is this man? But what it, the whole book is about, obviously, is who is this guy, Jesus? And it's the pursuit of this church more than anything else, that that would be the pursuit of everybody out there more than anything else. There's a lot of things that we can do with our life. 
but understanding who God is is the most important one of them all. There's nothing that you will do, whether it's missional or anything else that feels really great and big in this world, that will trump this single pursuit, which is who is this God? I must know him. I have to know him. And if we cast out demons in his name and we speak in the tongues of angels in his name, but we don't have this fundamental thing where we love him with everything that we are, it actually is all for naught. It's about that first and foremost. It's about this oneness with Christ. And we see it in John 15. It's like, hey, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And that word is really interesting, abide. The word abide means to live in, right? Like when you abide in something, it means you've like actually set up your house there. There's this sense of like dwelling. And so Jesus is like, hey, you come live in me and I'll come live in you and we'll operate like that. How does that sound? Like, yeah, sign me up, you know, sign me up. If I had more arms, I'd put them up. That sounds amazing, right? But the knowledge of Christ is this lifelong pursuit. It's this thing that like, it never ends. And I'll tell you, you know, early days when I first kind of tasted my first experience of Jesus, I got to say that I feel like the thing of intimacy carried a heavier weight in certain ways, not in other ways, but in certain ways in my life. And I feel like if there's anything that I want this message to do today, it's to restoke that fire of like, oh man, let's not forget that this is the first thing. This is the thing that trumps all other things. In my list of priorities of my life, if I get to the end and I know him exceptionally well, the other stuff will have taken care of itself. But if I don't, then the other stuff will be for naught. And so that's what we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 8 and talk about today. And we're going to get to explore the question of what kind of man is this or who is this man. Let's read. Verse 23. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. So he was previously surrounded by this massive crowd, and they they wanted him to stay and preach and heal the sick and do all the cool stuff that he was doing. But he jumps into a boat onto the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples follow him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked him, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When he arrived on the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs and met him. They were so violent that no one could pass through that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them was a large herd of pigs that was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they went out or they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. The whole town went out to meet Jesus, 
And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave the region. Jesus stepped into the boat, crossed over, and came to his own hometown. So the first thing we see in this part of the story is that walking with Jesus is no walk in the park. It says that they followed his command to get into the boat, and they followed his command to go to the other side of the sea. And right in the middle of following Jesus, this massive life-threatening storm comes out of nowhere. But before we get to the massive life-threatening storm, I want to talk about actually the preceding part which is where Jesus is asleep while the 12 of them do all of the work to get them across the lake. (laughs) You've probably never thought about this part, right? But I was meditating on this today, and I'm like, can you imagine? I'm picturing a rowboat. I don't know what kind of fishing boats they had back then, but these were not like catamarans with motors on the back. You know, like these things took work to move. And so whether they were sailing in kind of like a gnarly way or whether they were actually rowing the thing or something else, they were doing work to get them across the sea. And Jesus is chilling in the bottom of the boat, sleeping. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd probably have that thing going through my head that's like, if it was anybody else with Jesus, I'd like kick him and I'd be like, come on, man. Like, you know, we're going through the middle of the night here. We're following the master's orders. Like, get up and do something, you know? But it's Jesus. So you're probably like, all right, you know, like let him sleep. But I don't want to like jump over the fact that one part of like following Jesus in this is crazy, which is they encounter the storm, which is like utterly terrifying because they think they're going to die. But the other part is they're rowing through the night, like at his command. And I feel like, you know, to me, I've said this before in here, but I feel like sometimes the big stuff is easier for me than the small stuff. You know, like when, Jesus, when, when God comes to me and he says, like, lay, lay down, you know, X amount of money, and it's really big, then I'm like, okay, this must be significant. This is good. This means something, and I'm feeling holy right now. Like, ah, I laid it down. Like, there it is, you know? Yes. But it's kind of some of this small, like, nitpickier stuff that actually is harder for me over time, where you're kind of like, man, like, Walking with Jesus is kind of annoying in some ways. Like, I remember this, uh, for those of you who are new, welcome. This is, I get, I get kind of real with what's really going on in me up here. Um, I remember there was a time where uh, I felt like I wanted to, because I felt like it'd be good for my inner life, to give up R-rated movies. And man, these days, you can't watch a great movie that's not R. It feels like everything is R these days. You know, you're like... You're like looking through the list of movies in the, in, you know, Flickster or whatever app you use. And it's like, everything in there is R. Flickster? Is that an app? (laughs) Come on. Hold on. This is very important. Flickster is an app (laughs) that I use and it is quite good. So there you go. Uh, But sometimes it's kind of those nitpicky things that are kind of like, seriously, You know, like, do I really need to do this? And so there's a part of cost of discipleship of following Jesus that is signing up for a life where this is kind of, this is, sometimes he tells you to roll through the night. Sometimes he'll tell Suki to pray for multiple hours at like 11 p.m. That sounds terrible to me. He never says that to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I'll like wake up the next day and she'll be like thrashed and tired. I'll be like, what happened? She's like, I was up to like two praying. I'm like, man, you're holy. You know, like, did you pray for me? Because I was sleeping. But I think there's like a recognition that sometimes cost of discipleship looks like that. You know, it's not the massive stuff. It's not the huge thing. It's like, do you know how to get up every day and pray for an hour? Do you know how to row through the night because I've asked you to go to the other side of the lake? Do you know how to do reconciliation every, really well with that person that just like you just have to keep reconciling with? You know? It's like, man. And we're going to get to the end part after we talk about a few other things and talk about how this type of thing, not just the macro stuff, but some of the micro stuff, feeds into this topic of intimacy. So, so hang on with me there. The second part that I wanted to highlight from the text is Jesus expects his disciples to live through this experience without great fear. Does that strike you kind of weird? You're in a boat. There's waves literally like coming over the side of the boat. I don't know how Jesus is still sleeping with it like getting all wet, but he's like down there and the son of man has no place to lay his head. We found out in last, last time, but there he is sleeping at the bottom of your boat and he seems sound asleep and you're going through the storm of your life and he's sound asleep down there. Now the crazy thing is, is they come over to him and it shows some faith to wake him up. Like, if they didn't believe that he could do something, then they wouldn't have woken him up at all. But they come over and it shows some faith. Like, hey, we've seen this guy do enough stuff that he should probably know if all, we're all going to die together. Right? And so they kind of like wake him up and they're like, hey, we're going to drown. So like that statement shows that they don't have like great faith, which we see in a second when Jesus rebukes them. But they have some faith to wake him up. So they're like, you know, they're disciples on their journey, probably like we would be. But there's this crazy thing when Jesus actually wakes up that he, before he rebukes the wind and the waves, he rebukes them. There's two rebukes that go on here. One is like, oh, come on. You have such little faith. And then Jesus, like I said a couple weeks ago, like stands up on the bow and goes, be still, like yelling into the wind. And then boom, everything goes calm. Like how amazing would that moment be? Crazy amazing, right? Like the sea just gets completely still. You would be in such like awe and wonder. And then, but Jesus makes this statement. He says, you have little faith. And then so he says, why are they of such little faith? Why were you so afraid? So it was the fear that indicated that they had little faith. It was the fear that, they, that indicated that they had little faith. But the crazy thing is, is when you unpack this passage, had they ever seen Jesus rebuke nature like this? The elements of nature? Never. They had never seen Jesus do any, like a, a miracle that was like this. He had healed some leprosy, pretty awesome. Got rid of a fever, Probably would have been one of those ones where, like, you know, you pray for a headache and it goes away, and you're like, well, was that really a miracle, though? Like, maybe that was, like, Peter's mom, or, uh, mother-in-law's fever. Uh, but then he does, like, crazy miracles over this, this town, right? Right before they get into the boat and they come over here. But they had never seen him do something like this. And so when we're talking about the topic of intimacy, 
I think there's actually something really interesting here for us to unpack. See, the topic of intimacy is usually something like, I've gotten to know you over time such that I'm now open and I trust you. Like, if we're going to really simplify what intimacy is, right, it's like, hey, you know, like, I've gotten these experiences with you, and I've gotten to see how you operate, and trust is kind of consistency over time in a way where I've seen you show up again and again, and you're just amazing every time. But in this case, there's actually an expectation of trust in an area where they hadn't seen him show up. And so I think there's a principle to intimacy here that that goes something like this. There's an expectation for us to steward the miracles or the testimonies or the things that we've seen in God enough so that whatever we face, we have faith for it based upon the thing that actually wasn't exactly like it, but God expects us to translate it into our current situation. And for me, sometimes I come into a storm as a disciple of Jesus, and I don't feel very equipped for it. It feels like Jesus is sleeping on the bottom of the boat. It feels like the roof is crashing down. It feels like there's stuff going on in my life that my faith just doesn't have the strength to hold up under. And what I think this passage tells us is that that's actually going on for the disciples in this story, but it didn't have to be. It didn't have to be. They had encountered enough in walking with Jesus that he has an expectation of them that they go through this pretty gnarly experience without any fear. And when they experience fear, he brings up the truth to them and says, hey, you have littler faith than than you could, basically. And so there's something in this that we got to get. It's something about how do we steward the miracles that we've seen? How do we steward the testimonies that we have in our life? How do we live our life in a way where we're extracting and pulling out the most out of everything that we go to, go through? Like, I want to live a life where nothing is wasted. Where everything that I go through, whether it's a trial or whether it's a grand miracle or whether it's a worship set or whether it's a prayer time or whether it's a conversation with my wife, that I'm just like constantly in this place where my heart is wide open to God being like, okay, show me you. What, what, what's in this? What, what am I learning about you in this? And how is this preparing me for the next thing that I might go, to, go through? And and when we live like this, there's this confidence that you have, you can have when you face a storm, you can be like, okay, God, like you don't put me into tests that I can't pass. God is not a God who puts you into tests to watch you fail. When you have a humble heart, you come into a test and you're like, okay, Lord, you've walked with me for, for, for X amount of time, whether it's one day, one hour, whether you're calling on him in the moment or whether it's your whole life, but it's like, what have you walked me through in life that has prepared me for this moment? Show me it now. Help me to see it. Uncover it. Let me unpack it in a way that I have faith to overcome this thing that I'm in right now. And one of the things that blew my mind as I was meditating on this passage and preparing for today is that it completely changed the way I saw intimacy. I think unconsciously I had this thing where 
intimacy with the Lord was mostly about him initiating and unveiling himself to me in a way that I could finally see him. Like, I have this hugely strong value of getting into the word and being like, okay, God, this is a treasure hunt. Like, where are you in this? Show me you. Unveil yourself to me in a way that I can see it. Or show me a miracle. Or give me a prophetic word. But it's almost always this initiation from God thing where then I respond and go like, okay, there it is. And I'm like, oh, I've seen more of God. I'll be better next time. But the thing that rocked me about this passage, and we'll see it throughout the rest of this passage, is that there's a challenge about how you steward your experience that's in this that tells us a lot about how successful we'll be in this bucket of intimacy with God. How well you know him and your ability to walk with him will have a whole lot to do with how able you are and ready you are to receive the things that he's giving to you when he gives them to you. In other words, the disciples were previously in a place where God had given them a gift that could have taken them through this situation where they're walking through it and they're like, hey, Jesus, you have authority over all things. I remember that from the last miracle that you did. So I'm not fretting at all, but would you get up and like, it's kind of hard to row. Would you rebuke this thing now? Because I'd like to get us to the other side. I'm kind of hungry. Not like, oh my God, my world's falling apart. I don't know what to do. Right? And that's the part that Jesus looks at and he goes, hey, you have little faith. And it's not because you haven't seen enough. You still have little faith because you're not stewarding what I've given you in the way that you could. And I think there's a huge challenge for us in this. Not to look back on our past and be like, oh, that's me. I know I don't steward it right. It's not that, right? (laughs) This is about looking forward. It's like vision. It's like, yes, I want to live like that. And, And the thing that it did for me is it's actually kind of freedom, Because it puts the power for intimacy with the Lord back in your camp. If you're constantly waiting on the Lord to deliver something to you that you feel like he's not delivering to you, you kind of just feel victim to a God that you're really hungry for who's not unveiling himself in the way that you wish he would. That's not God. There's no way that we stand before him and any of the limitation that we had with him in this life was on his end. There's no way that that happens. So immediately we can take that mindset out of the picture and we put it in our camp and we go, okay, similar to like a a great marriage, you can have as good of a marriage as you want, especially when there's a perfect one on the other side of that union, right? Like in marriage, there's two imperfect people going. In this one, there's a perfect one in you. And it's like, In this relationship, you can be as close to Jesus. You can have the life that you want in him. And that intimacy that we were talking about is the number one priority as much as you want. And it's not similar to a marriage. It's not like the snap of a fingers and it's just done. Discipleship is hard. Following Jesus is rowing through the night. Following Jesus is not setting your own way, right? Like it says, the first words in this, they got into the boat 
and his disciples followed him. Followed him. It's like the tenth time in this chapter that followed him has been used. It's explaining that he's the lead. You're, you're the follower. He's the head. You're the follower. It's not a freebie. Just like having a great marriage is far from a freebie. It takes the little things and it takes the big things. But it's firmly in our control here as to what this intimacy looks like with the Lord. There's another thing that we see in this storm that's a key to intimacy for us as well. I, I picture the disciples having such a hard time with this, this, uh, this moment because they've been trained to think like this. So let's just say they've been, we're in Matthew chapter 8, there's 24 chapters, so let's just say they've been walking firm with one year. Third of the book, you, know, you guys see where I'm going with this. So he's, they've been walking with him for one year, seen some awesome stuff. But they've had a whole life where their mind has been trained to interact with moments like this. You know, I think there's like a reality that when we come to know the Lord, you kind of keep a lot of your old mindset when you say, Jesus, come into my life. He comes in, he fills you with his spirit. Your spirit, is a, a, your, your spirit comes alive in a new way and you're able to connect with God. But your thinking, your mind is not miraculously and instantly brought into the mind of Christ. And so there's this process that we call sanctification where your mind starts to think like Jesus is over time. Your mind starts to go from a place where it's how you've been trained to think. And trust me, how you've been trained to think is not like the mind of Christ. So like, there's this training that's happened in your mind and then you meet Jesus and he's like, hey, I need you to think in an entirely different way. And there's this process that we go through that's like, this is huge. This isn't like, you know, a process, I'm trying to think of like an easy process, you know, of taking, this is such a stupid example, but it's coming to mind, of like buffing out some old shoes. Like you take an old shoe and you spend half an hour with it and you like polish it and you brush it and then you like, you know, do the rag thing and then your shoes look nice again. It's not like that. This is your mind. This is like training your thinking. This is like a big deal that you have no chance of doing unless the Spirit of God is helping you. And so the, the disciples come into this situation. They're in this massive storm. And I think, honestly, if they had had time or like the wherewithal to take their eyes off the storm and think for a second and just meditate on what they had seen so far, I think they would have done better. But there was this reality that their mind was just trained in this way. Like, I bet that they, it wasn't even, it was like instinctual for them to freak out. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but like, sometimes it feels really instinctual for me to freak out. Or to immediately enter into fear. Or immediately start to solve the problem without inviting God into it. Or immediately start to panic and what can I, you know, like, there's so many different responses that we can have. But I think that the disciples would have done really well here to just stop for a second and be like, do you remember the leprosy? That was gnarly. That was like really gross. And he went and extended his hand into that leprosy 
and it like exited this guy's life. Do you remember that guy in the wheelchair? That was crazy when he pulled him out of that wheelchair. Do you remember the love you felt when he preached? Like you could just feel your whole being responding to the words of Jesus when he said that message. And I feel like if they had gone through a process like this, what it would have done is their vantage would have gone from the wind and the waves down to the one who seemed like he was asleep and couldn't care less and been like, no, 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 no. I've seen too much. I know he cares. I know what he's done for these people. I know what he's done for me. I've seen him in action. He's got this one too. And so I think there's this thing that we just need to be aware that as we encounter storms like this, it's really easy to default into our normal thinking of being impressed by the storm. It's really easy to just experience in the storm, go straight into fear, and when you go straight into fear, all your instinctual, instinctual stuff kicks in, and you're like, okay, how do I solve this problem? How do I get out of it? Either that, or you go victim style, and you go like, woe is me, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to be in this for the rest of my life. It's usually one of two, depending upon, you know, your thinking, and, uh, and you just hang out there then. And I think there's just like, there's a thing that we need to recognize that we need to have a game plan for when we enter that place. Let's do the honest moment here. Does anybody have a game plan for when they enter into that place? Fear, anxiety, panic, something bad just happened and now I'm not in a good place. The four of us in here are probably like, doing pretty well in this category, although it's not the, just the silver bullet. But I want to I do something really practical. We need to have a game plan for when panic hits your heart. We need to have a game plan for when you get rocked out of that internal place that feels like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's a beautiful thing. We hang out there, it feels good, there's no anxiety, there's no fear, it doesn't exist in God's kingdom. And so when we're in the right place, that stuff doesn't exist in us. And so we need to not tolerate it, if that's the case. But trying not to tolerate it when you're in that moment doesn't work. Because then you're in it and the waves are around you and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I'm dead. <laughs> so let's come up with a game plan to get out of that stuff crazy quick. I'll throw out there one for us. This will be kind of fun. How about we refuse to spend more than five minutes of our life in a bad place? How about we just make the determination that that's the case? And this isn't just mental assent. I'm going to give you a plan as to how you inter interact with God. But let's just say we refuse, we'll give ourselves five minutes to enjoy the pity party should you need the whole thing, but at least five minutes and you're out of there. And it'll look like something like this. I'm in, a, I'm in a bad space, so I could be in the middle of a BART train or I could be in a conference room, right? And it's gonna look like something like this. What's going on inside of me, if I can, I'm going to engage my physical body. Your body, soul, and your spirit are not in isolation from one another. Sometimes the reason why I raise my hands in worship is because I'm caught up in the glory and I'm sailing with Jesus. <laughs> Other times, 
Other times I raise my hands in worship because I've got garbage going on inside of me and my mind is in 18 different places and I understand that what I do with my physical body affects the stuff that's going on inside of me. And it's both. It's both, sometimes it's the manifestation of what's going on and sometimes it's the lead, the tip of the spear that I know will break me through into that place. And so if I can, I'm gonna put my hand right here on my heart or on my stomach. In the Bible, for some reason, the, the word for heart was stomach. I think it's like, whatever, heart's arbitrary too. Pick your, pick your poison there. Maybe both. If you're in a really bad place, just hit both. And you're gonna close your eyes and you're gonna go, Jesus, thank you so much for the heartbeat that I feel under my hand. Thank you so much that more than anything else, God, you've proven that you love me through the cross. Thank you that you've chosen me out of this world, God, to be set aside for your purposes. Thank you that you call me your son or daughter. God, thank you that as I look back on my life and you illumine the different things that I've gone through, God, I can say that your hand has been strong and your hand has been good. Doesn't mean perfect, but you've been faithful. God, thank you for the friends that you've given me, who if I call right now will pray with me. Thank you for the resources that you've given me, that I can open a Bible right now and I can meditate upon your word. In fact, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Thank you, God, that you're my shepherd. God, thank you that you cause me to lie down in green pastures. Thank you that you lead me beside still waters. Thank you that you restore my soul. Thank you that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Surely, 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 goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in your house forever, God. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for pulling me out of my old life and pulling me into a life, God, where I know you and I can turn to you like this and I can trust that by the power of your spirit, you yank me out of dark places and you take my mind and you give me the mind of Christ. Lord, I invite you into the deepest parts of my being right now. And even as I breathe, I breathe you in and I breathe out anxiety. And I invite the king to come and take authority over the deepest places in me. Any place that would be against the mind of Christ, I just ask as I breathe you in, just take authority over that place and I'll breathe it out and, and only your kingdom will exist in me. I breathe in your kingdom and your rule. I breathe out anxiety. That works. That totally works. You don't have to ever spend five minutes, more than five minutes in a bad place. You can do this. God will agree with this. If, this. if there's anything that's in line with his thinking and his desire for your life, it's for you to live in the spirit. living in anxiety, living in fret, all of this stuff. All this does is strip away the life that he would have for us, both in terms of how well we can love the world, but also just in terms of, man, 
He came to give life and give it more abundantly. Why do we let so many minutes of the day get robbed by our iPhone falling off the car seat and breaking like it did for me on Friday? <laughs> oh. Seriously, though, you know what happened there? I got super annoyed. My littlest daughter is two and a half, wanted to see it, but I was annoyed. I was all out of sorts inside, and so I said, whatever, let's just go inside. I put it in my pocket, and I stomped off, and she felt super rejected. I could tell because it created distance before, for the rest of the night with us, and then I go inside, and I feel like sad because I just did that to my daughter, really frustrated because of my phone, but honestly more frustrated because I'm in that place, and I know that I can get out of it. And so, you know, like, that's just a small thing. Like, when we talk about the storms of life that are, are real for the disciple and the non-disciple, the real stuff that we encounter in life, we need some tools. And so use that one. Like, let's do that together. Like, I nailed my five, we got to name it something in my, you know, five minutes. Five minutes to freedom! <laughs> Hashtag. Nice, Nancy. Trademarked. Five minutes to freedom. And as we get better at this, let's make it two minutes. And then let's make it five seconds to freedom as we train our thinking. But there's this reality that our thinking is busted. We haven't walked with Jesus our whole life. We don't encounter a storm and immediately go, oh, the Lord's my shepherd. You don't encounter a wolf and go, oh, the Lord's my shepherd. You go, wolf! <laughs> right? So this is a massive thing. Not only does it rob our life of abundance, it kills our intimacy. Like, think about those intimate moments, what I just, like, displayed for you on stage. I was actually, like, entering into that in front of 110 people or whatever it is. I was actually like entering into that, but like those are the moments where there's such an opportune time for intimacy. You know, it's not just like a neutral thing where you don't want to enter into the negative. Like you don't want to just stay out of the red. This is like an opportunity to double down and like experience something with Jesus where you come through and you're like, oh, like I've entered into such a deeper level of trust with you through going through this storm as we've just engaged each other and your spirit took over the stuff that's going on inside of me and gave me the fruits of your spirit. Like, that's awesome. I remember when my dad died, it was one of the most marking moments of my life. Suki and I immediately got on a plane because my mom and my dad were on a golf, on a golf course and he died right in front of my mom. They had been married for 43, 44 years and she watched him basically like having trouble breathing. He had a pulmonary embolism and he kind of like stopped breathing on the golf course in front of my mom. The most brutal thing I can, I mean, I can't imagine my mom going through something, maybe the death of a child, I don't know, but whatever, we're, we're in the majors is the point. This is like huge, big life stuff. And I remember going back, my, Suki and I immediately got on a plane, we flew over there, and within six hours of him passing away, or maybe it was seven hours, we were standing in front of my mom. Pretty awesome that the Lord gave us the ability to do that. It was really like miraculous how that happened. So like seven hours later, I'm hugging my mom, and of course, she's not in a good place. 
we go back to her apartment and we're talking about it and she's just like clearly messed up, right? In the way that you would absolutely expect her to be. And she says to me, I'm going to go back into the back, into the back room and I'm going to pray for a little bit and lay down. And so she goes back into the back room and she starts praying for a little bit. And Suki and I are out there like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this is going on. Totally feels surreal. If any of you guys have gone through this, it feels completely numbing and surreal. And it doesn't, usually it doesn't register fully and everything. And so we're just out there kind of like, wow, staring at the ground. And my mom comes out of the back and she was like glowing inside. It was amazing. She was back there for probably five minutes. And she went back there and started interacting with the Lord. And the Lord just came in this like super sweet way. And he gave her this realization that he had gifted her 44 years with someone that she was madly in love with and that she needed to be thankful for those 44 years, not feel like she was under a tremendous amount of like overwhelming loss that the rest of her life was without the one that she loved. And the way that she came out, she's like, there's so many people who never get to experience anything close to the love that we felt for 44 years. Like, how could I feel like God's robbing me of something or jipping me of the rest of our life together? Immediately, her mindset went to this like totally different place. And she was like transformed from the inside out. In five minutes, she went into her back room and prayed. In five minutes, she comes out a completely different perspective, completely different perspective. It doesn't mean that she didn't go through mourning, right? There's these surges of mourning that would come where it was God-given grief and mourning, and he mourned through it with her. But it was always with this framing of this new mindset, this new perspective on top of it, where she was grateful for the life that she had had. Do you know what that can do to people? That can destroy someone's relationship with God. That could have led her a million miles into the red. Where she's clawing out of it for 10 years. I've talked to people since then that are like, man, my parent died 10 years ago and I still think about it every day and it still rips me apart every time I think about it. Like, that's the test. That's, That's without Jesus. And I understand it without Jesus. But he's the great miracle worker. And so her experience, my experience has been completely different. You know what I learned out of that? That I can go through anything and with the grace of God, he's there. That his grace is not too small, or yeah, too small for anything that we can go through. But you need to go through, you know, maybe it's not the magnitude of something like, maybe you can go through something small like the disciples did and then translate it to something really big where you carry it through the biggest storm of your life. But like what I went through in that time was like, Jesus, You are amazingly good. And I saw it through the life of my mom, not even through the life of me. I was like, if you can carry her through, like, if you can carry through that situation in that way, for her, that is crazy. You can do anything in any life. And so both of us exited this thing, like, hugely in the black with God. And, like, this five minutes to freedom thing, whether it's, like, something small, like a cracked iPhone, or whether it's something big, like the death of a parent, It is like, it's the real deal. Do not waste any more of your life dabbling in the demons of fear and anxiety. Take command over that thing. As as soon as it comes, I do not have to live there. The power of God is available to me 
and you just go into your five minutes of freedom, you have the tools before you get there, and you move through. I tell you, if you master this, it will change your world. It will change your world. Let's quickly look into the second part of this text, because there's some fun stuff in here as well. Suki's going to add something real quick, and then we'll continue with the text. Just one of the things that I wanted to highlight, um, there's a difference between overcoming fear and anxiety and naturally overcoming grief, and I just wanted to make sure that we're not confusing that. Because I think what we're saying, when there's fear and where there's anxiety, usually there's a lot of lies. And what, it, what fear and anxiety tends to do is try to push us away from God. And what we want to say is in those moments, what intimacy is, is inviting God into things. Right. And so even in grieving and mourning, like just I don't want us, our expectation to be that we overcome grief in five minutes. And if we don't do it, we're not spiritual enough because I don't think that's what he's saying at all. And I just wanted to clarify that this is a process of um, overcoming fear and anxiety and how we can invite God into any moment. And that's what creates intimacy. That's good. That's really good. Thank you. Yeah. Grief is not a fruit of the flesh. Fear and anxiety are. Thank you for that. All right. So let's look at uh, some more of the text here. So this is, a, this is a scene where Jesus comes over into a largely Gentile village. So he comes into this Gentile. There's still Jews living in the area, but this is a largely Gentile area. And there's two demon-possessed people that live in this area such that nobody enters or gets near this part of town. So it talks about the, the, the herd of pigs, but you get the sense, it's, it even says in the text, it's in a distance. And so there's this, there's this thing that's happening here where these two demonized people, they're in a bad place, and they will mess you up if you walk down this path of road. And so Jesus walks down this path of road, and... I don't know about you, but if I was in the disciples, I think I'd be cool, but I, I'd, be, I'd like have the butterflies in the stomach thing going, right? You're walking with Jesus. Maybe you let him go a few, like, you know, a little bit ahead, so if they mess somebody up, it's him first. <laughs> and, you, and so Jesus comes up, and these, these two guys come sprinting at them, right? I'd be like, uh-oh, storm number two, here we go. I've heard about these guys. They mess people up. My cousin Carl got jacked by one of these guys. <laughs> and so they run up to Jesus. And what do they do? They immediately recognize him as the son of God. Yeah. Now, what we're going to see here is that the question in the boat was, who is this guy that's got authority over wind and waves? What we see in this passage is it's actually the demons that recognize him as the son of God. More so than anybody else, it seems. So immediately they drop to Jesus' feet and they say, what do you want with us, son of God? And they shout it out. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They have no question who's got the authority in this situation. The only one who's got question whether Jesus has got the authority in these situations are the disciples and the crowds. 
But the demons are like, this guy can rough us up in a heartbeat should he want to. And so it's like, judgment day is approaching. The demons know it. Jesus knows it. And they're scared. They're like, did you pull up the day for, to like mess us up and punish us for all the evil that we do in the world? And I just like that, right? <laughs> There's just something about that that's like, yeah. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? So there's a large herd of pigs off feeding, and Jesus said, they request, hey, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus says, yeah, go. Now, I don't know exactly why Jesus was, like, giving them their desire, nor do I know why they wanted to go into a herd of pigs, but Jesus does. He delivers the two people. They go from, like, gnarly, frothing at the mouth, like, crazy demonized to perfectly still. And then there are these poor herdsmen on the hill. All of a sudden, <laughs> this huge herd of pigs gets demonized. They probably like start snarling and going crazy and then sprint down into the water, crash into the water, and all of them are like belly up. Now, you need to understand here that this isn't just like a weird, crazy thing. This is the equivalent of like Jesus saying like, you know, yeah, go, go trash up that store right there. Just get out of this person, but go like destroy that store. And what I mean by that is like, this is the economic well-being of a large portion of the town probably. Like this is a huge herd of pigs that they probably ate off of, they probably sold, they probably had like their savings in. I mean, this was like, this was a large portion of the town's livelihood. And Jesus goes, yeah, like go into those pigs and crash. They're all of a sudden, you know, floating in the Sea of Galilee. And so these herdsmen, there's two things that go on with them. They're like shocked about the two demonized guys that are now sitting there perfectly still. But they're also probably like, oh no, like on my watch, the entire economy of our town just plunged into the Sea of Galilee, right? And so they sprint off into the town. They tell everybody about it, both the demonized people getting healed as well as the pigs, because it says in the text that they told them all about everything that had gone on. And the whole town runs out to Jesus. And check out what it says in the text here. 30, in verse 34, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. The thing that I think is not coincidental in the language of the text here is the townspeople see Jesus clearly. The demons know who he is, and the townspeople see him clearly. And what I want to state here is they see him, they see what he's done, and they ask him to leave. What is going on there? My previous definition of intimacy with the Lord, where it's all about knowledge of Jesus, just went into the Sea of Galilee with the pigs. It just died in this story. Because they see him, and it doesn't lead to this 
goo goo gaga moment with Jesus where now we're so much closer and there's all this trust in my heart for you. They see him clearly. It's not about knowledge at this point in some senses. They've just gotten more knowledge of who Jesus is and it leads them to say, get out of my town. And so there's something going on here in the topic of intimacy of like, it's not just about knowledge. Like these people saw what he did. He took authority over a demonized life and he, he <laughs> destroyed all their pigs and they're left there saying like, they should be saying, who is this guy? Who is this guy who has the power to free the demonized? Who is this guy who can cast those into our pigs? And who is this guy that would send them down the hill, I guess, and have our economy go into the toilet as these people get free? But they don't ask those questions. They see him and they say, please leave. And so what that tells me is that there's this thing of the human heart that we talked about previously in the first story that we need to revisit in this second story. What was going on in the people there that they weren't able to recognize Jesus for who he was and, and, and align with his priorities? I say align with his priorities because the first thing that I want to highlight that's clear is it's probably, to me, it seems like an economic thing, right? Like, if you don't know Jesus from anybody and he comes into your shop and you're a shop owner and he just like destroys all this stuff and you don't know why, you're going to be pretty mad, yeah. right? Like this is real life stuff. This isn't like, you know, this isn't, like I said before, this isn't baby stuff. This isn't like he messed up the roses in your front yard or some ridiculous thing that, you know, the communities that I used to grow that I grew up in cared about. <laughs> You parked in front of my house. It's like, it's a parking spot. Like, that, that was a real thing. It's ridiculous. This is like big stuff. This is like their economy. This is like really big stuff. And one of the things that Jesus is challenging straight out of the gates is, do you care about the freedom of the two men that are standing here more? Or do you care about the financial hardship that just happened with these pigs running down the hill? There's two things that happened there. One of them would be beautiful. The other one would be tough. Which one do you prioritize more? And I think if we're talking about how to do this intimacy in the long run type thing, we've got our five minutes to freedom, but then we've also got the big stuff. And the big stuff, the reason why this stuff matters is because prioritization in your life, what your number one is, if you will, determines everything about what your intimacy will be. They get zero intimacy with Jesus because they, they have economics tri trumping, tri trumping, trumping Jesus or knowledge of God. You see this crazy miracle, and part of this crazy miracle is something happens to, to your stuff, and you care more about your stuff than you do about the crazy miracle. Your priorities are out of whack, and you're going to miss him because something has become more important. Jesus is confident in who he is. And he knows that, that if, if, if you see him correctly and, and, and your heart is right and it lands on good seed, that, that everything about him is gonna sprout to life in your life and this intimacy thing is gonna be the best thing that ever happened to you. 
But he also knows enough that there's the things of this world that he warns us to be, like, be aware of. He warns us over and over again, like, beware of the deceitfulness of riches. Beware of those things. They will not give you the life that you want. Right? He says it super explicitly. Beware of the deceitfulness of riches. Why does he do that? It's because if economics go above him, it's not just like, oh, man, my, you know, my life is out of priorities just a little bit. It's like, no, no, no. The thing that just, when, when economics go above him, that means that him starts to, starts to corrode. Like that part of your life starts to deteriorate when something goes above him. This isn't like child's play games. Jesus didn't get up and say, beware of the deceitfulness of riches. Like guard your heart. Do not let that stuff enter in. Don't get into the pride of man. Don't care whether you're celebrated in front of the masses or whether you're not. Like get rid of that fear of man stuff out of your life. He says that stuff because it takes an assault on your intimacy with him. This, is, this relates to the first story where we talked about how do you live your life in a way where you're extracting everything out of the experiences that you have in a way that gives you great faith because you see Jesus clearly. This is the type of stuff. This town displays what happens when you're not guarding yourself, when you're not treating your heart and your inner life with Jesus like it's the most important thing in your life. When something's the most important thing in your life, what do you do? You value it. You treasure it. You invest in it. You guard it like, with everything that you've got. How are you doing that with your inner life, your mind, your heart, with Jesus right now? And again, this isn't a thing of like, oh, like I came out of church and I'm so heavy. You know, it's like not that at all. This is like, let's go all the way with Jesus. Let's not tolerate any of that stuff. In Song of Solomon, it says the foxes, I think it's like the little foxes have destroyed the vineyard. And you get this imagery. It's like a, kind of a weird book, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you get this imagery of like, it's not the big things in this. It's like the little foxes are destroying the vineyard. It's like, if we don't knock this stuff out of our life, it grows, and then it becomes bigger. And then, you know, and then you, next thing you know, you're like, hey, I wonder if this Jesus guy is so good after all. And it's like, I've talked to people who have had real encounters with God, like the real deal stuff. And then they end up walking away for a relationship with somebody who doesn't follow God. It's like, what happened between here and here? And usually it's not a single moment. It's usually not like, well... You know, like, I decided right here that that wasn't working. No, no, no. It's these little offenses. It's these little things where I, you, did, you just didn't steward your heart and your mind well enough. You know, living a holy lifestyle, the whole idea of living a holy lifestyle, you know what living a holy lifestyle is? It's it realizing how valuable your mind and your heart are and that that is your offering and your gift to God. And so if there's going to be anything in my life that doesn't get touched, it's my mind and my heart and how aligned it is with God because that is my very offering to him. That's a holy lifestyle. It becomes all this weird religious stuff where you can do this and you can't do that. And it's like, that's the why behind the holy lifestyle. It's not about watching our movies or not watching our movies. It's about what that our movie can do to you if you're not watching it in the right way.
It's not about, you know, pick your arbitrary thing that feels like it's the biggest sin in your life and big, bad, and scary. Think about the why behind it. The why is you have something amazingly valuable to offer the Lord. And it's your fight of this life to keep that thing set apart unto him. It's the, it's the battle of your life to keep that the most important thing where you have this treasure that you're consistently offering to him like, hey, look, like you get the deepest places of me today because nothing's trumped you. My priorities are not out of line. They're right in line. And what that does is it leads me to want to draw into you. So when we talk about all of this stuff, let's just remember like what we're talking about at the bare bones basics is this is how you have an intimate life with God. You know, like, I, I, I think that every couple should go to marriage counseling. Before you get married for pre-engagement and through your marriage. Because marriage is hard enough that you can't do it on your own. And you need people in your life saying like, oh, when you did this, what that did was trigger in her this, and that's why it blew up. Or here's some tools to get through this part of your life. That's what, that's what a large part of church is. That's marriage counseling for your relationship with Jesus. So somebody can get up with you every week and say, hey, did you remember this? This will keep you safe. Do you remember this? This is who your God is. This is who Jesus is. Don't forget who you're following. Do you remember what the stakes are? This is the life that you can have. It's relationship count. It's like, it's constant reminders because this thing is the battle of our life. It's the, it's, it's the whole thing. And what I, like I said, when I started the talk, what I want to do is I want to just like ratchet that up for you in terms of like, how important is this to you? What does it mean? Do you flippantly skip church? There's the why you don't. Do you take long to reconcile because it's hard and there's like that pride thing going on inside? Like there's the why as to why you do. So you have something holy and perfect inside of you to to say, yes, Jesus, this was a gift. You put me into a place of righteousness and now I've given me your spirit so that I can walk in righteousness and we can do this thing. So we're not earning our salvation. That's done under the blood of Christ. We're walking it out. By the power of our Holy Spirit, we're, we're able to walk it out now. This is holy living because I want to be one with you more than anything. I want to be one with you more than our movies. I want to be one with you more than pornography. I want to be one with you more than my anxious thoughts and the idol of fret and anxiety. I want to be more than, one with you more than I want riches or power or whatever. Like that's the why behind all of this stuff that we do. And the outcropping is getting to change the world. The outcropping is getting to do community really well. The outcropping is all of this comes as we establish this intimacy with the Lord. And we're able to receive him into our hearts because we've, Kept a, we've, we've, we've prepared a place for him to abide. We can receive him into the deepest parts of our being because we've intentionally prepared the way for the master to come into the inhabitant that he wants, that he chose. That's where I want to live. And that's why he says, you live in me and I'll live in you. It's both ways. Prepare the way for me. Come and live in me. Let me live in you.
that's enough. Um, let's get the worship team up here. So let's, get, let's move into a time of some prayer. So I suspect we may need some prayer ministers up here because we're going we're gonna to go after this thing of what does it look like for you to prepare the way for the king in your life? What does it look like for that to be the first and foremost? What does it mean you do more of? What does it mean you do less of? All of this is just like having a great marriage. It's the practical, it's the nuts and bolts, it's the day-to-day, and it's the big stuff. Money will never dictate my decision-making. That's a core value of mine. But I also need to reconcile fast, right? Like there's, there's big stuff and there's little stuff. And what I want to invite you to do in this time is just as we worship, do business with the Holy Spirit. Invite him into the deepest parts of you to bring up anything that he wants to bring up. Sometimes it's shame that stands in between you. And he'll come and he'll say, you have no idea how much I love you. And like, if you'll receive his words and not knock those down, it'll change your life. But sometimes that's the hardest thing for us to receive because we're waiting for the rebuke. I know you're going to tell me, oh, you have little faith. You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't do this. But actually, for some people, he just wants to draw in and say, like, no, 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 what I have for you is you need to receive this into the deepest part of your being. You will never go and want because I'm your shepherd. I will never allow anything to happen to you. I'm delighted in you. There's a whole part of that. Then for another camp, you're in, like, the let's get super serious, I want to do this thing all the way camp where it's, like, I've identified either fear, anxiety is an idol, or there's something else in my life that I feel like I just got to get rid of. I don't want to get it out of my life. And then number three is I want to add stuff into my life. I have date night every week with my wife. We try hard to protect it. What does that look like with God? We try hard not to go to sleep on our anger and have stuff fester and forgive each other relentlessly. What does that look like with God? And so there's proactive. There's like get that stuff out of my life stuff. And then there's just like the tender sweetness of the Lord that I think wants to come in and break shame off of some people's lives. So let's just do some business with the Lord. I invite you to come and get prayer no matter where you're at because we want to go after this intimacy thing. Father, I thank you so much. Let's all stand actually. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you that it's your desire to come and give life and give life more abundantly. God, I pray that as we move into this time, God, whether people are getting prayer for just like awesome strength and discipline about the five minutes to freedom, or whether it's real stuff that has come up in people's lives that just, they just need to share with somebody, have that person pray over them, declare truth over them, get them free from the stuff that would keep us from receiving you deeply into the deepest parts of us, God. So we thank you for this time. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that it would be super powerful that through the prayers of people, God, that we would have the ability to tear down strongholds that would otherwise rob us of life, God, in you. So we thank you for this time, Jesus, and have your way. Amen.